Good morning. Regret that Stacy is not well, but I'm honored to be able to be here with you this morning once again. Would ask that you would rise for the reading of God's word and turn with me, if it's not on the screen, to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. We're going to be reading three verses, verses 8 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as always, we give you thanks above all for this word that we have to learn about you, to learn about us, who we are without you, who we are in you, as you have redeemed us and made us a people called by your name. I pray that you would guide our time together here by your spirit, superintend all that I say that it might all redound to your glory and that indeed Christ will be magnified as we uh, open your word together. I pray that you would make me a humble speaker and make all of us humble hearers of your word because you give grace to the humble and we need your grace. Finally, I pray that whoever hears in this room or online will only come away from this message remembering that which your word has spoken to their heart. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Those of you who know me know that I like to cook. That's one of my hobbies, I guess you'd call it. And if I were to tell you that I was going to bring a gumbo to a covered dish dinner, some of you would get pretty excited about that. Um, but the word gumbo in and of itself doesn't mean a whole lot, right? What you, what you really understand me to be saying when I say I'm going to bring a gumbo is that I'm going to bring andouille sausage and shrimp and onions and peppers and celery and spices all mixed together in a way that's just delicious, right? <laughs> Sounds good, all right. But we're not leaving for lunch just yet, okay. But if I were to say that, you understand what it means. The word gumbo, in other words, has no meaning in and of itself. The word is an umbrella under which we have all of this meaning packed full of uh, the ingredients, if you will. Well, I think we have something similar here in our text, and that's why I bring that up. I think the word love is, has definitions that are all over the place in our culture and in the church. So Paul here in verse 8 says, love fulfills the law. Amen, that's true. But it, it, it leads us to ask, or it should lead us to ask, what is the law, I'm sorry, what is the love that fulfills the law? Thankfully, Paul unpacks it for us in the next verse, in the first part of chapter, about verse 10. He says that 
The commandments, not to commit adultery or murder, not to steal or covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So he unpacks it there, and he says, if you love someone, you won't take their wife or their life or their stuff. Right? And Jesus is going to go uh, deeper into that in the Gospels and say, well, you've heard that. Let me tell you that even to desire to do that is the same as doing it. So you don't even desire to take their wife, their life, or their stuff. Even that is not what is part of this commandment to love. You see, it's not just emotions. Love is not just an emotion. It's an action. Understand, love, at least in a biblical sense, is not a Valentine's Day, romantic comedy, high school prom night context that most Americans perceive love to be. In the Bible, love is never divorced, cannot be divorced from action, from a verb, from doing. Which makes me think of the ministry that both Dan and I serve with, Timothy too, several years ago. Uh, began uh, something we call the family fund. Um, originally, with Timothy too, I was trying to be very focused and say, we need to stay on mission as, as, as legitimate as other needs may be. We have a calling to train pastors and ministry leaders and to, to deviate from that, even into things that are noble causes, orphanages and things like that, would detract from our ability to do that which God has set us apart to do. And so that we tried to remain focused in that way. And yet many of the people that we serve around the world are literally a day or two away from starvation. Many of them work today to eat today. And as we get to know these people, we get to know them well, and we begin to, to feel like they are indeed Family. Of course, we are all part of the family of God, but there becomes an intimacy there. One of, the, one of the brothers in Myanmar asked me to name his child. There's those kinds of connections between these people. And I became convicted one day reading through James 2 where James says in verse 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so we created the family fund for the purpose of helping to not just tell these people, be warmed and filled, but when there was an urgent material need, especially in light of the pandemic, where they normally would work today to eat today, and because of a lockdown, they can't work today, we created this fund to be able to step in and help them and to put actions behind our words. Well, so it is with saying, I love you. The words in and of themselves are vacuous, empty, shallow, hollow, if there's no action that proves the word. So, love means action. Well, what is our motive for such love? Well, quite simply, we have been loved. In an incredible way, when the God and creator of the universe took your sin and my sin and put it upon the incarnate son on the cross of Calvary, we were loved, and that was an action that demonstrated that. Paul begins this passage using the idea of owing. 
Beloved, we owed God a boundless debt. Christ offered the only sacrifice that could could satisfy a boundless debt, an infinite sacrifice. And so that boundless debt that we owed to God now can be shown in a boundless love for people. We owe love to God. We show love to people. And we can't really serve God otherwise. You may remember I was preaching up here a few months ago, and I made the point then that we can't really give to God, not in the sense of uh, meeting a need. We can't serve God. Acts chapter 17 says as much. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. You see, God is all-sufficient, and He was before He created this world. And God lacks nothing, and He lacked nothing before we came along either. But we honor God, and we obey God by serving others and loving others, and, beloved, that fulfills the law. So that's what the love looks like. That's part one of the equation. The second part is what is the law that love fulfills? What is the law that love fulfills? We live in a world that doesn't really like laws or rules or regulations, especially here in the the West and in America. Now, if you've been into places in the world where we serve and some of the places where Rissa and I have lived... You know that in many places it's not uncommon to see soldiers with machine guns walking down the street or walking through the shopping malls. That's just how you live life. But, but in, in, in the West, we cherish, and rightly so, the freedoms and liberties that have defined our nation. And yet sometimes that idea of freedom and liberty bleeds into our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we think or we anticipate freedom to do whatever we want rather than freedom to pursue righteousness. Freedom actually to obey. Because you see, Jesus by his own admission in Matthew 5, 17 said that he didn't come to abolish the law. He did fulfill the ceremonial law. Now, it gets a little confusing sometimes, but the law in the Old Testament is typically divided into three ways. There's the ceremonial law, which was the sacrificial system, all of the temple practices. Well, all of that pointed to Jesus. And so he fulfilled that because all that pointed forward to the true Lamb of God who would take away our sin. And then there's the civil law, all the things about how Israel should, should rule it, be governed as a nation. Well, that's not applicable except perhaps in principle to our governments today. But the third part of the law is what we call the moral law. And that, beloved, is still applicable today. Jesus, as I just referenced, did provide a deeper understanding of the law, but that didn't negate the previous understanding. He wasn't saying, now it's wrong to lust after someone, but it's okay to commit adultery. 
He added a deeper understanding to the law. He expounded it. He did not replace the moral law. So the law is love in action. The law is love in action. Let me put it another way. The positive command to love, which is what we see here all through Scripture, the positive command to love is defined by the negative commands of what not to do, all the thou shalt nots that we're familiar with. The positive command is defined by the negative commands. And so what I am saying is that the Ten Commandments are not a relic of antiquity. They're not something that just belonged to the people of the Old Testament. They are as relevant today as they ever were. And Pastor Stacy preached a whole sermon series on this. So this shouldn't come as a surprise, but it may become as a refresher. Now, the law is not intended for salvation, but it never was. No one could ever be saved by following the law, even in the Old Testament. Even if someone had followed the law perfectly from birth, which no one could do, they would still not be saved because that does nothing with the original sin with which we all come into this world. No, the, the law is a reflection of the character of God. And the law represents the righteousness we are to reflect as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And I'm going to mention his name simply because he's a public figure and he put this in a public book. But Andy Stanley said that the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none, to be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Beloved, that is what we call antinomianism. It's the idea of being against the law. In our tradition, as Presbyterians, we have uh, the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and attached to that, or a part of that really, are catechisms, which are a series of questions and answers that were traditionally asked in in the child-raising process. But in the shorter catechism, there are 107 questions. 42 out of 107 42 deal with how to apply the Ten Commandments in our lives. The Ten Commandments predate Sinai, Mount Sinai. What I mean by that is prior to Exodus 20, when Moses ascended to Mount Sinai and God wrote the laws on the tablets of stone, prior to that, all of those laws were already understood in the nature and character of God in the preceding chapters which represented the preceding generations. So they're not Jewish. They're not Jewish. They're godly. And they reflect the character of God. Jesus used a similar example of what Paul is doing here when he interacted with the rich young ruler, which you may remember from Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, it begins in verse 17. You don't have to turn there. But it says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Then he goes on and says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so the rich young ruler said to Jesus, well, you know, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
Do you see what Jesus is doing here with the law? Jesus is using the law exactly as it's meant to be used to expose sin. And he lists all of the laws on the second table. That's what we talk about when we talk about the law. The first table are those laws that have to do with our relationship with God. Um, no other gods, no idols, uh, honor uh, God, don't take the name of God in vain, uh, honor his, the Sabbath. And the second tablet have to do with our relationship with others. And Jesus lists every one of those except for thou shalt not covet. And in doing so, he's using that commandment to get this guy where he, right in the heart, to make him realize that his, his desire for material possession is going to keep him away from the kingdom unless he has a change of heart. And so he leaves disheartened. So the Ten Commandments have the moral law of God has the role of exposing in us sin. As a matter of fact, sin is defined as a transgression of the law. If you want to know what sin is, you have to know what the law is to know if you've broken it. Paul does the same thing elsewhere in 1 Timothy in chapter 1. He says, we know that the law is good. And then he goes on to say, um, he mentions the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, Paul is using all of these ideas of what uh, would violate the law of God as a way to, to make us aware of sin. In Galatians 3, Paul uses the idea of a guardian and says that we were under the guardian of the law and now we belong to Christ. He says in verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When I was a child, my children, my children, my parents taught me not to play with matches. Well, I don't live with them anymore. I'm not under their guardianship. But it doesn't change the validity of what they taught me. I still don't want to light the dining room table on fire. Right? The principle of what they taught me is, is consistent throughout. It's, 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 not, it's a timeless idea, even though I'm not under their guardianship. In Romans 7, Paul says the law is holy, just, and good. And I'm, I'm belaboring this point because of people like Stanley and the quote that I have above. There's many in the church today that have a feeling that all we have to do is love. The Ten Commandments aren't for us anymore. And I'm telling you that if you want to love, you have to know how to love. And the way we love is by reflecting in our character the character of God. And if we want to understand that, we do that through the moral law. Now, much of the confusion comes from Paul's words in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 14, where he says, we're not under law, but under grace. That's, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament people were under law and the New Testament people are under grace. Let me tell you what else it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Jews were under the law and the Gentiles were under grace. Let me tell you what it does mean. Before I was saved, I was under the law. I stood under the curse of the law, the condemnation, because it revealed in me that I was a sinner, whether I wanted to admit that or not. You see, the law requires what we cannot do. But once Christ 
saved me, once I was born again by the power of spirit, I am under grace. The law requires me to do what I cannot do. Grace does for me that which is required and enables me progressively throughout my life to do more and more of what is required of me in the law. Paul goes on in the end of verse 9 of our primary passage in Romans 13, and he says, all of those commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, we see this as the golden rule. It actually came from Leviticus chapter 19. We think of it as uh, being on the lips of Jesus, and indeed it was, but he was quoting from the law, from Leviticus 19. Love others as we love ourselves. Now, that's both negative, in other words, don't hurt, just like I shouldn't want to hurt myself, and positive, do good, just as I should desire good in myself, for myself. One writer says, and I like this, love studies and then delights to please. In other words, love looks into a situation, into a person, and, and studies that person to find out what they need, what they, what, what, what they like, what, what, what matters to them, and then delights in pleasing that. Again, do you see the action behind the idea of love? The commentator Matthew Henry, and I often recommend him to you, a very pastoral, readable commentary. If you ever are studying your Bible and wanting to know what it means, most of the time you can't go wrong by reading Matthew Henry. He says, love is a living, active principle of obedience to the whole law. Let me say it again. Love is a living, active principle of obedience to the whole law. An extreme example of this would be Hosea and Gomer, an active, positive love that he demonstrated for her even after she left him multiple times and were with other men to the point where he actually went and paid another man money to bring his wife home. That's the kind of active, active love, obedience to the whole law. So that's the second uh, element here. That's the law that love fulfills. It fulfills the moral law of God. So we know what our love should look like. We know what the law requires. So who are we supposed to love or whom for the literary among you? Whom are we to love? Well, in the Bible, God tells us love your neighbor. We just saw that. In the Bible, God says love your church, the fellowship of believers, not just this church, but all of those who claim the name of Christ. In the Bible, God says, love your spouse and your children and your parents. In the Bible, God says, love your enemies. Your enemies. Jesus said, even sinners love those who love them. That's the easy part. And in the Bible, God says, even love strangers. Well, that's pretty much everyone alive, isn't it? Including those that are nearing the end of their life and including those that are just beginning it, nestled in their mother's womb. We've talked about love, we've talked about the law, now let's talk about life. We see in verse 8 that we're commanded to love everyone. We see in verse 9 that murder is forbidden, and murder is the antithesis of love. And this law and this commandment to love come to us from the giver of life. 
Sanctity of life issues include opposing euthanasia, opposing mistreatment of the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, society's castaways. And yet in our modern climate, the singularly overwhelming application for a biblical defense of sanctity of life is in response to the slaughter of millions of babies in this country and around the world. It is wrong. It is evil. And we should raise our voices in protest against it and pursue every legal remedy to abolish the horrific practice of abortion in this country. And at the same time, our context this morning is not only law, but love. A cliche is something that's true and told often. And it's a cliche, but it's true. And it needs to be told all the time that God is a God of second chances. For the woman, maybe in this room, maybe watching online, maybe a family member who made the decision for whatever reason, poverty, fear, inconvenience to have an abortion, hear this, God is a God of second chances. Even, even for those who perform the act, God is a God of second chances. I can testify to that. Perhaps you can. Oh, beloved, the law is the law. God's law, of course, is what I'm referring to. And abortion is a sin. As our passage said, thou shalt not murder. Abortion is the taking of a life that's already in the image of God. And yet God is a God of second chances. And grace trumps everything. It trumps those feelings of, of disgust. It trumps, the, it trumps even the evil in this world. Nothing can overpower or overcome the grace of God. So we declare God's law and we declare God's grace. We decry the sin of abortion and euthanasia dying with dignity and the marginalization of the destitute, the homeless, and the sick. And yet we offer the hope of the gospel. We defend those who can't defend themselves, and yet we receive in love the one who falls on their knees before a holy God in repentance. We love, and love fulfills the law. But it's not a law without teeth. Indeed, the law of God necessitated the death of the Son of God. We dare not trivialize it, minimize it, or God help us, ignore it. And our love must not merely be in words, though words are welcome and nice, but there must be actions. They must be demonstrated. People should not just hear that we love them, they should see it. This applies to our family, our friends, our church members, strangers, and even to the vilest of sinners for but by the grace of God, we would be indistinguishable from them. Paul is talking in this passage to the church in Rome and to us by extension. In chapter 1, verse 7, he said he's writing to those who are loved by God and called to be saints. 
Beloved, don't be sitting there saying, who needs to hear this? You do. I do. We all need to hear what God has to say about the love of God and the love the way we show love to people and the law of God. In the 1960s, when our culture was embroiled in what would become the cultural revolution that would radically change our morality, our, the structures of values, so much in our culture would be changed. A phrase was coined to define the, that, that movement, and it was free love. Free love. At the time, G.K. Chesterton re- responded to that. And he said, they've managed, the movement has managed to create the ultimate contradiction in two words. Love has never been, is not, and will never be free. Love binds. And that's what this is all about. Not a sanctimonious declaration of the law, but also not an empty platitude from a greeting card. but a commitment to love, to care for, and to nurture both physical life and spiritual life in a baby, a mother, a father, the ill, the aged, and everyone else. The law of God is not merely applicable to his people. Everybody will ultimately be judged by the law of God. That's its function. And this includes all those who have made really bad decisions, even those leading to tragic sin. But even for them, God is a God of second chances. And for those who place saving faith in Christ, for those of us who are in Christ, we will be judged by his righteousness and by his faithfulness to the law. And beloved, he, alone among creation, fulfilled the law perfectly, kept the law perfectly. And though our salvation isn't based upon our law-keeping, we are commanded to keep it. As a missionary, of course, the Great Commission guides our, our whole existence, where Jesus says, go into the nations and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Obedience is not a dirty word, despite what the culture may try to tell us, increasingly so. But the command to obey, and this is the sweet part, it's for our good. It's for our increase in righteousness. And we should love it because he loves it. God loves his law. And we should say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Beloved, let us love according to the law, and by the grace of God, we will fulfill the law. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we... Come humbly before you and before your word, understanding that uh, we are measured against the perfection of your law and every one of us is found wanting. 
whether we want to admit that or not. I thank you that you have called on many of us, perhaps most of us in this room and watching online to rely not on our own faithfulness to the law, but on that of Christ that we might partake of his righteousness and be adopted into your family, to be justified, to be redeemed. But, O oh Lord, for those who have not, for those who are mired in the, the cultural uh, issues of the day and for those who are defending practices that are, that are evil and that violate your law, for those that are practicing those activities that are evil and violate your law, Father, we pray for a spirit of repentance. We pray for a revival in this country that, that this nation will rise up again and say we will obey God because he is God and because he has called us to follow Christ. I pray for each of us here today that you would minister this word into our soul and into our spirit in a way that will transform us, that we might be the salt and the light that you've called us to be in a dark and an ugly world filled with sin and in need of a Savior. May you be glorified in Jesus' name.